0: The drag entertainer Shane Jenick, better known to the world as Courtney Act, has lived a remarkable life, and she's just getting started. A frontrunner on season six of RuPaul's Drag Race, Courtney's season included many memorable people and moments that became a huge part of queer culture.
1: But it wasn't all fun, glitter, and games. The show had issues with its lack of trans representation, Which put Courtney in the awkward situation of getting blocked by host RuPaul on Twitter for speaking out against the silent ban. Ironically, today gender is more fluid than ever, and it feels like all the contestants on Drag Race are either trans or non-binary.
0: Today, Australian sensation Courtney Act joins us to give us the inside scoop of writing her new book, Cotton in the Act, a memoir by Courtney Act.
1: Listen as we talk with Courtney about falling in love with a sexy construction worker in Chicago.
0: How she won the hearts and minds of the world on Celebrity Big Brother UK.
1: And finding out her dad was no stranger to drag himself.
0: I'm Fausto Fernos. I'm Mark Fillion. And this is Feast of Fun. Hello. Hello. Who is this? This is Courtney ax I'm sorry, we don't want any. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so
2: funny? I was like,
0: "Hang on, a minute. hang on, are we
2: recording yet?" Yeah. We
0: are. If you, if you, do you want to okay, pause? Good. I want
2: to save it for the pod. You guys are like the OG podcasters.
1: That's right, and you're a horny little Sheila, aren't you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I did notice that your podcast has taken a turn from being like drag race queens to bodybuilding. So I think you might be the horny being. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listen, I read your book from cover to cover and uh, you get a lot of oh, okay. action. Well, in yeah, I am, <laughs> I am a horny
2: little feeling. Some of it took place right there. And you guys are in Chicago. Are you still in Chicago? Absolutely.
1: Yes. Same apartment you were in? Same dog that sniffed your crotch when he came over?
2: <laughs> well, there's a story in the book. Oh, I can't remember what I changed his name to. Because I had to change the names of some people. No, it wasn't Oscar. It was a boy. It was the other boy. At that same time, Oscar was like on the. He was in the. Oh no, I wasn't allowed to say that. He was in that. Um, <laughs> anyway, it happened in Chicago. I think that same weekend. Anyway, hi, oh. how are you? Wait, wait.
1: This is somebody a you tr- had, a, she had a relationship with. Uh, someone you fell in love with, Oscar? No, the other guy.
2: Well, Oscar, yes, okay. but there is another guy who I still am in contact with now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, oh, but wow. I met him in Chicago, and we still talk like. Every month, we, like, send messages, and oh, wow. he sends me, like, life updates, and if I were there, I would I would see him. He, I guess he's technically my longest ever relationship. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's not really quite a relationship. It's a different kind of relationship.
1: Does he still send you dick pics?
2: Yeah, he does, and he works on a construction site in Ohio. Oh, oh my and God. Tell <laughs> me more. He's so lovely, <laughs> and I don't know how much more about him I should reveal, but...
1: You know, it's part of the reason why we love Chicago is there are a lot of very beautiful men in this town. Yeah. Because a lot of people come from all over the world to be here in Chicago.
0: Yeah, it's a fun city. And you're fun guys. Well, I mean, the last time you were here, you came into our home and sang all these beautiful songs and despite Jesse, our dog, trying to interrupt you because <laughs> he really was very fascinated by your, your, by your scent. aroused by my vocal prowess it was uh and and we have a video i don't know if people have seen it on youtube where you're singing and then you're like oh my god what is this dog doing (laughs) (laughs) but um uh courtney congratulations on the book it is you know no small feat to put your life into words and your book Caught in the Act, a memoir by Courtney Act, is a must-read for everyone this holiday season and makes a great stocking stuffer. It's an extraordinary life you've lived so far, and you're not even 40 yet.
2: Well, I am 40. You just okay. You know 40. what it is? It's a fashion accessory for a gay cruise, surely. <laughs> Imagine like sitting aboard that Atlantis cruise around the Mediterranean, holding your caught in the act book. Like The other gays will be like, not only does that person... Know how to read. Not only do they have good taste, but they probably are feeling inspired by all of the bloody sex stories in Courtney's book. That they're feeling a little bit aroused.
1: So
0: <laughs> it just makes sense. Well, what was the process like writing your book? Because you know, for some of the contestants of Drag Race, they first would have to learn how to read and write. <laughs> <laughs> or judges. Um, wh- or the judges. Yeah. The process was
2: really, I sat down and I thought, what story do I want to write about? And it really and truly was the story about Oscar that we mentioned. And I just started writing about this. It wasn't even 24 hours in, oh, hang on. I changed the city as well, Indiana. Um, And I had written like 20,000 words and the publisher was like, that's great, but the whole book is only meant to be like 60 to 80,000 words. So I feel like Twenty thousand words on this one boy in a, you know, eight-hour experience might be a little, (laughs) a little bit much. But basically, she just said to me, like, sit down and just write, write everything, write each story. And I just had a, a Google Doc, and I would think of a story or an experience or a time in my life, and I would just sit down and write it. And then I divided that into geographic locations of the places that I lived. And then sort of trimmed it down from there. I wrote 220,000 words and uh, 80,000 made it into the book. So.
1: 220,000? Wow. I know.
2: Think what didn't make it in?
1: I, well, what didn't make it in that you were like, I'm surprised they didn't use that? <laughs> well, to be fair, 100,000 of those are about RuPaul.
2: I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: Well, you do. You do mention RuPaul. I mean, RuPaul is—you know—it's. Uh, uh, she gave you your big break here in America, really. She did. Yeah. She
2: did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I—it was interesting because I like wrote about Drag Race and my experience, and then I wrote a lot of other stuff as well. But sort of, I don't know. When I read it back, it felt like maybe I was. Right. Somebody has started up a buzz It is eight AM in Sydney. I live in the eastern suburbs. We don't go for that sort of stuff around here. Keep it down.
0: <laughs> we can't. We can't hear it though. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But so, so, yeah. So, while, when you were looking back on sort of re- your reflection on the experience, did you feel like you were being too harsh or too kind to RuPaul?
2: Um, I think that my there was my reflection on my experience, and yeah. then there was also like the hurt child um, who wrote some bits and pieces. And I, when I looked back, I was like, oh, yeah, you don't need to say that. You weren't saying that because that was... Uh, I wasn't right Some of the things that I wrote, I was writing because I had felt uh, a hurt feeling. And I really wanted to focus on the fact that... Like, there was, there was obviously, like, some juicy things about my experience. But, like, ultimately, I look back and I'm like, wow, what an amazing opportunity and what an amazing adventure. Like, I've always wondered... About those iconic times of history, like the Warhol era and G fifty four and club kids. And I've often wondered, like I was reading a book by Andy Warhol, Mm -hmm. or maybe it wasn't by him or it was about him. But I was reading it and I was like, when will that next era be? And I was like, Oh my God, I think I'm living in it. Like this era of drag race queens is gonna be looked back as being such a impactful and iconic era of not just queer history, but I think like when, when the queers tiptoed over into the mainstream, and I think it's really exciting to be a part of.
0: Well, point on the Jason Wu designed RuPaul doll, where RuPaul hurts you. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, is, what was exactly like the? <laughs> uh, what was exactly the, the point of contention? It was it was a lot of the was that there was sort of a silent ban on transgender contestants on the show. And you and Ben de la Creme at the time had grave concerns about that, and it wasn't just the silent ban, but also the way trans women were sort of thought about or were the butt of jokes on the show. It started with that
2: challenge, the, the infamous, and I'll use the word the language of the day, the female female mm-hmm. um, challenge that was on our season, which has now been edited out of oh really know, any of the versions anywhere. Yeah, you you go back and that mini challenge is gone from the
1: television. From Netflix, from wherever oh, you watched. Oh, so. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I didn't know it had been removed. Uh,
0: America, you're you have feast of fun to thank for that. And Courtney the Act and, and ben. Courtney <laughs> Act and Ben
1: <laughs> and a bunch of trans activists That's who came bit. forward and said, "Hey,
0: well, but yeah. we were caught in the middle of the whole mess, <laughs> oh. and, and with Michelle Visage in this home studio looking at me like I was trying to start something,
2: That's right? Yeah." That's right. I'm having a flashback to this.
0: And we don't have a, we don't have a relationship with that, with that judge anymore that because of that, (laughs) just to to point that out. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. I look, the world is a different place. And I think that I look, I think that at the time that that challenge in particular felt uncomfortable but I don't think I was yet armed with the language. In fact, I think Ben to La Creme more so. I remember Ben sort of enlightening me to what was going on even more than I quite understood. Mm-hmm. There was there was that and there was, you know, pressing things that were had done at the time. I think the good thing is is that it seems either due to uh, just the society pulling Um, and evolving ideas forward. Obviously, Drag Race has caught up with that narrative and, you know, there are trans people of all genders who participate on the show, which is a really positive thing. And I just love that um, trans stories get to be told. I was just thinking last night, I was watching this TV show in Australia um, and they were doing an episode on gender and there was like a gender-critical woman on there, Um, and there were some other different, varying ideas about trans identity, and you see sort of people debating these sorts of topics in the mainstream, and I don't think anybody wins, because I think uh, you often see two sides of an argument being argued, but you don't hear any lived experience or see any lived experience, and so I think the best way for the queer community, including the trans community, to come to more equality is by having more types of stories being told. And so I think that's why trans representation on drag race is so important because trans people are so marginalized and we can argue about whether they should or whether they shouldn't do this or do that. But if you just show them as the human beings that they are and celebrate the human beings that they are, then people get to go, ah, oh, they're human. Yeah, they should be able to use the bathroom and play sport, shouldn't they? Um, But I think without that sort of humanization, and I think if we can't do that on Drag Race, then, you know, we're screwed. And so I'm glad that we are doing that on Drag Race.
1: Without a doubt. And, you know, I mean trans people are such a big part of drag in and the, and the show I've groups and the bars been. and always have been. And, yeah. you know, a lot of yeah. people have used drag as, as as their stepping stone to to to, to their life. To
0: womanhood, honey.
1: Yeah.
2: To womanhood. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, one of the yeah. things that I explored in my book, which was actually really helpful for me, was in my queer youth, um, there was, like, trans showgirls um, were sort of where the where drag began back in the sort of 60s and 70s in Sydney. Um, And there was this confusing thing in my mind that had always been there where a lot of the the trans women that I knew from that era sort of said, ah, you know, darling, it's just what you did back then. If you did drag, you went on hormones and you got got tits. And I was always like, oh, that 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 sounds so confusing to me. And I I went back and I examined it and I sort of did that causation versus correlation thing. And I realized that in the 1960s, like, uh, and if you were attracted to the idea of femininity um, and you ended up, you know, I remember one of the, the showgirls that I know of that year saying she saw like an article in the newspaper about this showgirl review in King's Cross in Sydney called Girl mm. and the idea that there were men dressed up as women and something about that lifeline, that tiny little you know, article in the newspaper spoke to this person so much that they moved to Sydney to explore that and they they got a job, you know, working at Lay Girls and then eventually joined a show and it wasn't that, you know, if you did drag back then you went on hormones and got tits. It was the fact that these people were drawn to femininity and drawn to this experience and that back then there was only really two options and for a long time until very recently there was only two options if you're a trans person, a trans woman, which was to get to get employment, which was to be a showgirl or to work in sex work because they weren't able to get jobs, you know, in air quotes, normal mm-hmm. jobs uh, because they just weren't accepted and so sort mm-hmm. of going back and examining a lot of that and understanding um, you know how drag and trans identity intersect for so many people, especially back in that day, was was really fascinating and helpful and cathartic for me as well.
0: You were uh, paired off with Chaz Bono. At least Chaz Bono and, oh. and uh, his grandma loved you, yeah, Georgette. Georgia. Georgette, yeah, Cher's mother. <laughs> and and uh, how are you guys still in touch these days? Yeah, Chaz and I chat
2: all the time. I. I yeah had Dinner the last time I was in LA, no, the time before we we caught up, and yeah, he's a he's a dear friend of mine. And he um he read his parts in the book, and I uh, just sent him a copy of the, the book that's coming out there in the US in a couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, he's a dear friend, and he's been somebody who I've really valued in as having a friend, um, through all of this as well, and also because he was like there on drag race, but he's not. You know, one of the girls who uh, went through the experience with me, but he, you know, followed it and viewed it and is a fan Mm -hmm. of the show. And so we had a really great time becoming friends after the show.
1: You talk in the book about like drag is like about nonconformity, but then also in some ways it can be very conformist. And you mentioned like this group of queens, like, and you called them the Beige Brigade. Can you describe what that is to to listeners? Because I was kind of fascinated by how like, you know, uh, local drag. (laughs)
2: <laughs> in Sydney in the early 2000s, um, the old guard of
1: drag or the current guard of
2: drag were called the Bays Brigade. Um, they were these drag queens that emerged out of a post-Priscilla Queen of the Desert world where drag uh, became really popular in Australia. There were a lot of tourists who would come. Uh, when they came to Australia, they would want to see a drag show like they'd seen in Priscilla. And the Bays Brigade had like a set of rules of what you had to do if you wanted to do drag, it was it was almost, I guess, like um, an, an attempt, a successful attempt to be professional and to make drag a professional thing. You had to wear, um, you know, you had to wear the Capizio pantyhose and the fishnets, and you had to wear elbow length um, gloves and these the same type of earrings. The makeup, you know, had to you had black liquid liner eyebrows and a black liquid liner lip line. Um, and you had to wear these beige shoes. Why beige
0: so shoes? <laughs> well, that was like Terrence Stamp's look in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Was that it? Was very beige, and, and she used to be a late girl. Yeah, well, you have to...
2: When you're doing, like, a, in Sydney, the drag shows quite often production shows where there would be three or four drag queens, and it would be, like, a group number, then a costume change into a duet, and then a solo, and then a group number to finish. And so changing shoes during the show... Took too much time, and (laughs) beige shoes go with everything. I guess it just looks like an extension of your leg. So Uh, they just had these beige shoes that would be like strapped on with a piece of pantyhose that was sort of like looped around like an elastic band to keep it on your leg. Um, And so yeah, there was all these rules, and I came in uh, into that the end of that era where Vanity and myself and Ashley. Um, we're like a new drag family who were called new millennium drag. Mm. Uh, And we tried to break the rules, but we also had to conform to them. We had to
0: learn them, conform to them and then break them. And you broke all the rules (laughs) so much that, uh, yeah, I I guess I I don't want to, you know, be digging up stuff, but you know, here we are. Uh, so RuPaul banned you on, on Twitter and blocked you on Twitter.
2: Are you still blocked? Uh, no, I did get unblocked. That story didn't make it into the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, what, did you get like an apology or anything like that? Cause I mean, these days, like you can't, I mean, which drag queen isn't a little bit trans or non-binary.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't get an apology. No, but you know what I did get? I did get my name mentioned on the current episode of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, not by anybody immediately associated with the, the franchise, but uh, an Australian celebrity, Sophie Monk, who is famously my doppelganger and me hers. Um, she often jokes and I often joke about being confused for each other. Uh, they had her as a guest in the, on a Zoom call in the workroom on Ripple Digrex Down Under, almost in a, anybody but Courtney Act sort of way I thought but um, <laughs> she jokes when girls were all like oh Sophie Monk, Sophie Monk and she was like oh I'm so glad you all knew who I was because usually people just think I'm Courtney Act and as I was watching I, I fell off my feet to hear my name mentioned in the franchise it was a, 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 a brief that uh, you know uh, well I won't say a healing moment but it was nice to hear
0: my name Courtney, the, the the call is. I know you're. We're. You're talking to you in Australia. Are <laughs> you sound like you're in the
1: outback? You are over Wi-Fi, right? Uh, yeah, I'm on the Wi-Fi. Is it a bad
2: connection?
0: Yeah, it's a. It's just jumping no, in and out should, and stuff.
2: Should I try FaceTime?
0: Face, yeah, that Face, would be much would better. FaceTime audio. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Let me try that. One sec. Yes, Queen. Come on. Shall we try this? Let's oh, see how so much better. much
2: better. Ah, oh, now that we've reached the end of the interview, bye everyone
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there's there's a couple of things that we wanted to uh, talk about um your father when when yes. you you know you've you've been very accepted by your family as being gay when you were a young kid, mm-hmm. but when you came out as a drag queen to your father your like, your father was like, "Well, I'm no stranger to that myself <laughs> yeah,
2: my dad had uh, lived with six drag queens back in the seventies,
1: yeah, wow.
2: <laughs> Which, like, when when you're coming out and you're being like really vulnerable to your parents and you you it was the the night that I came out, you know, as as liking guys, and then Dad was like, "Oh, you'd look pretty good dressed as a Sheila," and I was like, "Well, actually, I do drag as well." And then, yeah, when he told me that, it was actually the level of solidarity I was not ready for. I was like, <laughs> "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" And it kind of took me years to then talk to dad, uh, you know, and ask him questions uh, about that. But it was funny just how, like, I was the one who was, like, expecting them to accept something. And then they were like, yeah, yeah, I accept that, and I raise you six drag queens.
1: Did, did any of these drag queens that he lived with, have, have you ever met any of them? Did they ever be like, hey, that's, the, that's that's we used to live I with haven't. your dad.
2: Do you know what? I actually haven't asked him their names. There's definitely, like, people uh, from Brisbane who... Uh, whether not you have given me a whole new exploration, and I don't know why. I there's got to be yeah, a sequel to this book, yeah. A sequel to this <laughs> book where my dad and I joined the circus.
1: <laughs> now, of RuPaul's Drag Race, RuPaul is always talking about people's inner saboteur, and it seems mm-hmm. to me from reading your book that uh, one of the producers identified your inner saboteur as your humanity.
0: <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs>
1: That you were just like you were too privileged to to uh, to have suffered you didn't suffer enough to snatch the crown I mean kind of true <laughs> they wanted to you wanted to be left at a bus stop right is that what it was yeah, well, I think the thing
2: that reflecting back to that time, I remember. That I was thinking like I'm on a TV show. I am determined to be the best that I can be. I want to um, like I want to shine at every opportunity. I want to do my best. Like I've I've gone through all of these experiences that have led me to this, and now I want to show the best of me. But I've also learned since then that um, to be an effective storyteller, you have to be able to connect with people through those through that you know. Air quotes, humanity, um, and I really do. I interestingly think that I now oh, I hate to admit it when someone's right,
1: <laughs>
2: but like in a way, I now understand what Rue or what the story producers were sort of saying. I just don't think that they. It was either either me or them. Somebody didn't get it out of me because I. I think that ultimately, my my drag race edit did sort of lack some humanity. But I think perhaps they were looking for humanity in the wrong places. Like I wasn't left as, at a bus stop. Um, and I I think that uh, perhaps, I don't know, I think I sort of explored this in the book a little bit that, you know, perhaps they were, yeah, perhaps they were looking in the wrong places. And I remember sharing stories with the story producers that, you know, were about my My younger years, my like wild party years where I struggled with drugs and things like that. But I don't think any of those topics had been really explored on Drag Race as yet. That came in later seasons.
0: Well, they wanted you to have a nervous breakdown or crying or be like, I'm feeling very attacked. And you're like, oh my God, what, you know, you're surrounded by all these large personalities. And here you are like well-adjusted, elegant, uh, a successful contestant on Australian Idol. Yeah. And for, for all the, you know, uh, tumbles or struggles that that may have happened on Drag Race, when you went on Celebrity Big Brother uh, season 21, you won it. I did win it. But you know why? Because in a room full of drag
2: queens, I'm the, like, most privileged. I'm the pretty white girl who has parents who love them. Right, And when you walk into a room of straight people... On mainstream television, I'm the freak by default. Mm. So it's sort of a relative thing. On yeah, on Drag Race, I'm the most privileged. On Celebrity Big Brother, I'm like the the air quotes bottom of the barrel sort of thing. And it's fascinating to see how that changes in in different rooms that you walk into. And so just by being me and being interested in the things that I was in, having earnest and polite conversations with you know right wing politicians about marriage equality or women's rights. That was all I had to do in that format. I just had to be myself and have those conversations. And so that was really validating to me because in Drag Race, I felt that I had to, well, I didn't deliver something Mm -hmm. that I wasn't. I was just me. But in order perhaps to succeed in that format, I had to lean into, you know, a, a dramatic story or something like that. Whereas in Celebrity Big Brother, all I had to do was, you know, talk about my values and share stories about my life and my experience, which in that environment was already exceptional.
0: Well, and they sort of uh, pitted you against uh, Anne Widdecombe. She was uh, like a Mm right-wing British politician, and of course, it just makes you look more delicious and beautiful and (laughs) appealing next to this, like you know, really unsavory, uh, hateful person, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, in twenty-three years of Parliament, Anne voted against every single piece of pro-LGBT legislation that ever came before her. She's against women's reproductive rights, the like everything. You know, good in this world she doesn't like um, she was a member of the Church of England, but when they started ordaining female priests, she converted to Catholicism because that was too progressive for her and so for her and i to be to end up as the last two people in the house um was a really fascinating experience because although I didn't agree with. And very, few, I agreed with very few of her values, and we had many conversations about them. None of them turned into screaming matches, and um, they were all sort of at a speech level. And she and the public, I think, really respected that, which was one of the reasons that I that I won, um, because those conversations were quite respectful um, in the face of somebody who you know really opposed everything that I was and everything that the modern world is really.
0: Well, part of it is, too, it's like, you know, when we see people having conflict on television, it's usually, like, violent. And mm-hmm. here you were calmly and beautifully, you know, having a discussion that in some ways was more appealing just because of its rarity.
2: Yeah. And before I went in to the house, I actually had a um, lunch with Calpurnia, who Calpurnia is a- Adams. Kelpania Adams, yeah, she's a a trans woman and performer and smart lady all around. Mm -hmm. And we role-played. I thought that Jermaine Greer, who's a a feminist, sort of first wave, second wave? Second wave of feminism sort Mm -hmm. of brilliant thought leader who in recent times had maybe, maybe then she hadn't yet said, anyway, we thought that she might be in there. And so we had a lunch where Kelpania role-played Jermaine uh, and I was myself, and we sort of thought about that idea of there being an antagonistic person to my identity who was in the house, and how was best to deal with that. And I can't—I I don't know if it was Calponia who said, or if it was like the result of the conversation—that you know you were never going to change Jermaine Greer or as it was, Anne Whitcomb's mind. And so perhaps thinking about the people who are at home watching rather than, you know, changing the mind of the person. And that was that sort of shifted the perspective of everything, because I didn't need to be right. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to beat Anne Whittacombe. All I had to do was voice my opinion in a rational way so that other people could hear it, even if she wouldn't. Um, And I think that really helped Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in the house.
0: What do you say to people who their experience on reality television, whether it's big brother, drag race or any other show, they got a bad edit. (laughs) And it's interesting because some judges even say that they got a bad edit on their experiences on reality television shows. And, you know, at at a certain point you're, you're handing trust to somebody else that this experience is, is you're going to leave you better off than where you came in.
2: You stick your dick up someone's ass. You expect a little shit. (laughs)
0: i think that
2: you know it's it's anything can happen on reality television and i think i was very fortunate that when i went on drag race it was almost the peak of that golden era of drag race the single digit girls Mm -hmm. as we uh we the single digit season girls as we now refer to ourselves um well Willem and I refer to ourselves at least we were on tour who were we talking to where were we We oh we were um we were with Lady Camden uh in Northern California and um Willem used the term us single digit girls because now there's so many seasons of Drag Race Mm. that you you kind of they start to lose meaning because there's so many girls and so many franchises around the world and i think the you know the seasons three four five six seven eight nine were sort of those golden years where we so many people were watching so many people started turning on and being engaged and we have such a amazing fan base from that and i i think that um as time goes on you realize that Drag Race doesn't have to be the beginning and the end of your career and that life goes on and your story goes on and you can make of that what you will. Um, but ultimately Drag Race was an amazing opportunity, like you said in the beginning, to be launched to the world. And I'm very grateful for that. It was struggling at times to go through. Probably even if I had a good at it, it would have been struggling at times to go through. I'm sure we've all struggled with the loss of anonymity and, you know, being publicly scrutinized and stuff like that. But I think if you just hang in there and you continue on the journey and you focus on what it is that you love and why you're doing it, then uh, you can come out the other side, you know, with success.
0: Courtney, you're so charming and delightful. Um, I'm so sad that we don't have more time with you, but you know, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. All these years later. I think it's been 8 years since we It must have while. been 2014. I yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah. And and I want also thank you so much for um r- doing a testimonial video for Cooking with Drag Queens. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. We're still waiting to make that pavlova. <laughs> with you
1: (laughs) maybe next time you're in chicago if you're not uh, busy riding on oscar or whatever his name is (laughs) you can pop i was just trying
2: to look up in my book what his name was (laughs) but i can't i can't find it but yes i will come and make a pavlova
1: with you
0: oh i'm looking forward to that all right thanks for having me nice to talk to you both take care love anytime Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye
1: courtney act lives in the eastern suburbs of sydney australia
0: well, we could tell from the beginning. Of
1: the- <laughs> I was like
0: thinking we were talking around the top of a mountain somewhere, yeah. you know?
1: You can buy her book, Caught in the Act, a memoir by Courtney Act, wherever fine books are sold. And I'll help also put a Amazon link in the show notes. And so every little bit counts if you click on our links, we get a little bit of money.
0: But support your local LGBT bookstore if there's still one in your community, because uh, those uh, businesses are definitely the heartbeat mm-hmm. for a lot of uh, communities. And so... If you can buy it from a local bookstore, please do so. But mm-hmm. if you want to buy it through our links, uh, do that as well. What's your reflections on this book? Because you know we were very much a part of the golden age of drag race. Mm-hmm. You know all those people, yeah. especially mm-hmm. Courtney Ax mm-hmm. season. Right. We had on the show. We had very close relationship with all of them. Um, well, and for- when this drag uh, trans controversy started unfolding, we were in the of the hurricane.
1: Well, because we, we're in the high of the hurricane because we We're, you know, we covered a lot of drag We talked to a lot of drag people and we also have a lot of trans friends and our trans friends are coming forward and saying, hey, this stuff isn't cool. I don't like this. And even, you know, you know, we're empathetic enough to know when we see something on television like this isn't right. And so, you know, we uh, we talked about it. It was also, you know, the T word was also up for debate at that point in time. Now, you know, people were just like, I'm going to nobody's taking this T word out of my cold, dead hands kind of stuff. They're going to make nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares so it's like you know Cause everybody's it's a, a lesson it's a lesson you have to kind of apply to yourself right now is like if you have something out there and you're like oh my god you, you can't take this away from me i'm like well try living without it and see how you do and you know what we're doing just fine without the t-word right
0: Nah, you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can still use it with your friends You know, you know part I mean? of it is and the like, thing is, is like you We have don't a want to changing change. times. Yes,
1: it's changing times And also, too, it's like You yeah. know, when you talk about the golden era You say it's the golden era And we talk about, like, the golden era in Hollywood You know those were times were also very repressive. And what do fascists like to do? They like to refer to things in the past as the golden era when things were better, when we had more control over these people. And so, you know, uh, you, you might call it the golden I'll, era. But I'll, now about, it, I'll explain but why. Now, but yeah. now more people are watching the show more than ever. There's more trans inclusion. So maybe the golden era is now.
0: I, I call it the golden era because the world and the country wasn't ready for it. Mm. So when we talk, look at, you know, uh, the, the first couple of seasons of Saturday Night Live, the not ready for primetime mm-hmm. players is what they called them. And a lot of these artists were queer artists who got on that show and the world was not ready for them. And despite, you know, the fact that we, we sat in a meeting with Logo Television who said to our faces, we will never, ever do a television show with drag queens, period. 2006. 2006. And, you know, that guy didn't work for them anymore. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so there was an innocence. There was a, um, an awakening. There was so much goodwill. And when you have those moments in history, and, and, and whether it is culturally or through entertainment or politically, mm-hmm. that awakening process is very exciting to be part of. And, you know, I'd rather live in this day and age where we sort of have more trans visibility and inclusivity. I mean, television shows like Pose, for example, mm-hmm. is something that we've started to see a lot of trans artists and entertainers and performers and writers, directors, creators, funders, mm-hmm. people who make producers, you know, making culture happen is something that's happening today. And I'd rather be part of today than in the past. But there's an excitement, you know, and we had a hand in shaping that we were there. We were talking to these people in our room here that we taped the show about these issues Mm -hmm. and trying to either successfully or unsuccessfully raise awareness. And, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, I mean, it led to a lot of broken relationships, sadly, to Mm -hmm. to say that, because I like the show. I liked what it was. I like drag, but, you know, in some ways it, it uh, pushed us out of the scene mm. permanently in some regards, you know, and, the, you know, Courtney's like, you you left drag queens, you're doing bodybuilders. I was like, well, you know, bodybuilders aren't as hard a book for the guests as you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, we could talk to a bodybuilder for an hour and a half mm-hmm. and, and, you know, with a publicist for any major drag queen that we had a relationship with. We can only get a a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm very grateful for it. And And I'm happy with the half an hour. Yes. In service of the audience and this show, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of questions that you wrote, too, that you wanted to get to, you know. Mm -hmm. And, And certainly, like, I thought it was really interesting about her experience with drugs and coming to the United States, her first sexual experiences her, you know, how Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of shaped the lives of really many drag queens, the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, how it influenced drag queens around the world, and her friendships with these contestants, uh, Bianca del Rio, Adore Delano, and Darian Lake, are are things that are really important to talk about, not just because the book is great, but also having this conversation with the person that, that created this book and is there is really something extraordinary. And, and we're, you know, I value this show and I love the conversations that we have. And I wish that we would have a little bit more time, you know, but at the same time, I'm very grateful for any conversation that we can have with them, you know, in, ter- in terms of the book itself though, like what for you was the, like the standout juicy moment that you got to go out and buy this book. Cause it's so good.
1: Well, I think of learning a little a bit more about like her her, her growing up and then how she came to America was kind of fascinating because mm-hmm. I, I, I think I knew some of that stuff, but not all of it. But I was a little surprised when she was just uh, when she moved to L.A. and she found out that people were, you know, doing meth, but it was all very secret. And like That's doing so, so. it at, at home, but we're in Australia, she'd be like, we just be hanging out It'd be, you know, a group of us, you know, in the club or whatever, in the bathroom, just passing that glass pipe around. So and like so, in
0: the clubs it was very uh certain drugs like meth mm-hmm. was was seen as, as more social, a, right? As like like smoking a joint, yes. a marijuana joint. Mm-hmm. And then in the United States we've had a lot of crises when you had people who are like abusing these drugs and losing their their mm-hmm. their homes, their their jobs and and so it started associating that negativity with that specific mm-hmm. drug.
1: And she also talks a, a little bit of how she's talked with other mm-hmm. girls. And it's hard to date when you're a drag queen because, you know, these guys, they're, they're kind of like fixated on you because you're a star. Yeah. But then once you get them into the bedroom, they sometimes don't get a boner because like they're thinking about you as like in drag and drag can be a real turnoff for a gay man. But like, you know, for a straight guy who's kind of gender fluid or hetero fluid kind of thing, you know, a, a boy in panties can be a real turn on.
0: Well, and, and part of it is, you know, we watch so much sexualization in cult- culture and pornography. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now it's like you open up Instagram and half of the people on your Instagram are doing OnlyFans. Mm-hmm. And and so we when we see a sexual act taking place, we don't see like the relationship that's developing to lead to that sexual act. Mm. And so we have in some ways like a handicap um, that we think like sex is going to be perfect and the boner is going to be hard and everything's going to be fine. (laughs) You know, and and when in fact there's a lot of give and take and not all sex, it leads to orgasms. Not all sex is about erection. Sometimes Mm. it's about intimacy. Sometimes it's about cuddling or, or holding hands or massage, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so we don't have the vocabulary to talk about sexual connectivity, uh, community. And I think, you know, Courtney Act's book does a really great service in sort of bringing us into the awkward, the difficult, the challenging, the messy moments in a person's sexual life. And you said in the book that there's a moment where she, her first she had sex with a guy and she didn't use a condom.
1: Well, she wasn't going to. She, she wasn't didn't planning really on realize it. Yeah. The guy said, "Like, wait, you should use a condom." She's like, "Why? I can't get pregnant." Because I guess she, you know she was naive and maybe she wasn't schooled on HIV and AIDS because she was a young person. You know, this is at the height the, of the
0: AIDS crisis. Well,
1: this would have been the '90s, right? Yeah, yeah. Early '90s. You know, right? well, uh, or, late or late mid '90s, late late '90s. Well, she's forty. Yeah. So, okay. so do the math. So 20, in, in, in the year twenty thousand, I think she, she did two thousand. She would have been <laughs> she would have been twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So before that, so like she's eighteen, nineteen ninety eight, nineteen. When you know this, the the you know before prep came out and everything. Uh, So, yeah, but it's kind of, you know, that's why you always have to keep messaging and you have to get such education in school so kids know to protect themselves.
0: Well, and there's something about a charming, beautiful, blonde Australian entertainer, Olivia Newton-John, who just passed away. And, you know, uh, I would have loved to have uh, talked a little bit more about, you know, Olivia Mm Newton-John's impact on drag entertainers and her specifically, Mm -hmm. because, you know, this... Icon influenced so many people with these a very short film and music career, uh, you know, compared to other entertainers, you know. And and uh, Livy and John, um, you know, had this kind of a really interesting career path that mirrored her character of Sandy in the movie Grease. So she starts off as a goody two shoes, you know, and she discovers that she catches more flies with honey than wholesome. <laughs> And uh, she becomes a bad girl. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, embracing her sexuality and her rebellious nature. It's the
1: drag queen path, isn't it?
0: It's the path of a drag queen, yeah. Mm. And, and so, you know, to me, it's interesting that, like, the most commercially successful Hollywood musical and the least commercial ho- successful Hollywood musical were both starring Olivia Newton-John, Grease, and the movie Xanadu. And the Razzie Awards that are hilarious because they celebrate the awkwardness, the poor performances, the weird films that come out that people don't know what to make of, make sense of Xanadu was the film that inspired the Razzie Awards. Wow. And, uh, Livy Noon John was the first, uh, woman to be nominated. Did she show up for the award? Of course not. (laughs) She's like, what? How dare you? (laughs) Xanadu is a place where nobody dares to hide, where all your hopes survive. And she hid. Uh, well, and and, and Olivia Newton and John met her first husband and had her first and only daughter, Chloe. Uh, she said, well, you know, people said that the movie uh, Xanadu was not magic, but my daughter came from that movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that song, uh, Magic, that she co-recorded with ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, to this day is something that's played in nightclubs all around the world. Aww. You know, it's one of her, I mean, you think about like Olivia Newton John's hit songs, uh, physical Was the first time that you saw a gay couple on television on MTV in a music video kiss each other?
1: They kissed. They kissed. I'm sure that that was edited out.
0: It was probably edited out later later on. But you know, it was it was MTV at that time. Didn't even have um, they couldn't even get Michael Jackson on the air. You know, and Michael Jackson is you know one of the greatest names. He Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. They didn't want to
1: put him on. They they forced.
0: They had a fight to have Thriller. On MTV. Because they didn't want
1: to promote black artists. They didn't
0: want to promote black artists, you know. And here, Olivia Noon John, in her wisdom and in her in her kindness and compassion, she was like, saw that it was really important to include LGBT people and gay men specifically in her music videos and in, in her scene and her ambiance. So, you know, Courtney Acton, in, in some ways, is the artist that sort of carries on that beautiful legacy of inclusivity and embracing sexuality and diversity. And so it's, it's great that Courtney act is still going on strong because, you know, being a successful drag queen and be a successful entertainer in this day and age, as Courtney says, when there are hundreds, thousands of drag queens all around the world that even look like you <laughs> and why <laughs>
1: beige brigade is coming for you. The
0: beige brigade is going to take your gigs. And so, so to me, it's, it's uh really interesting to see that she's still able to put out a memoirs and, and, and have a career. And, and I think that's a testament to her strength and beauty and grace as a person without a doubt, you know, so Courtney act, Courtney act, get it caught, caught in the act. That's a pun. Yes. What is the act that she got caught in? Sitting on dicks. <laughs> <laughs> a memoir by Courtney Act is available where fine books are sold. The author, Shane Jennick, is not a ghostwriter. That's Courtney's birth name. Mm. The name given to her by her parents and the name she chose as a performer is Courtney Act. That's right. Remember, folks, Feast of Fun is made possible because of fierce Fabulous people just like you. you want to access thousands of legendary shows, including our past interviews with Courtney Act, with Adore Delano, with Bianca Del Rio, with everybody from that season, Vivacious, many of the artists from that season, you can go to Willem, God, you know, Alaska, everybody, RuPaul, Michelle Visage, all of them on this podcast. You can go access them without any ads, without any commercial interruption, by going to com slash plus. Yeah,
1: especially, you know, that, that pivotal that um, episode that we talked with Courtney about. You can listen to us talk to Courtney about that. You can listen to us talk to Ben, to Sharon Needles, to Michelle Visage. They all have varying opinions on to what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And At that, the time, yeah. and I'm sure many of them, their, their opinion is... You know, I'm sure, well, maybe not. Maybe their opinions haven't changed. I don't know. But (laughs) if they haven't changed, they should have changed.
0: (laughs) I think, you know, at this point in time, I think everybody sort of moved on and is embracing uh, trans artists and entertainers and see them as a vital part of their community. And not
1: gatekeeping them and keeping them out.
0: You know, I mean, at this point, it's like you kind of have to include people that don't normally participate in drag to make the show interesting. You know, and so for me, it was like someone like uh Maddie Morphosis, who's a heteros identifying as a heterosexual, cisgendered man as a drag queen mm. on RuPaul's drag race. I was like, I was really excited because I was like, oh, here's this bro, and he's gonna be like, ooh, I'm surrounded by all these women with titties. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: but, you know, like uh Maddie's their own unique person mm-hmm. and and in some regards is is more aligned with the other contestants in their Uncertainty, ambiguity, and and even shyness, and and drag becomes this tool for them to express themselves, to bust out of that shell that they've created. So it, it's it's great to see that that show is still going on strong and and uh, introducing so many people, including people in our own community across the street that we live in in Chicago, to the world and and becoming successful entertainers. I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's no. wonderful that that drag is still strong, and I think it's great. It's (laughs) wonderful. Well, we're coming to an end. Remember folks, uh, Feast of Fun has another podcast, Let's Grow Big Together. It's sister podcast, or brotherly podcast, where we go into the lives of bodybuilders, muscle gods, and muscle worship. And it's available everywhere fine podcasts are found. You can subscribe to Feast of Fun, leave us a review, share the show with your friends, and remember, Life is short. Fearlessly be yourself and ruthlessly pursue your dreams. That's right. Bye, everybody. Bye. -bye. Bye.